Hi, and welcome to the Habits of Habit podcast. My name is Brian Conroy, and on this podcast, we aim to inspire and empower you to change your habits and change your life. So if you're new to this, uh, prepare to have your mind blown, um, because our guest this week is Professor Wendy Wood, uh, who is, uh, well, pretty much one of the leading global authorities on habit formation. So sometimes when you say someone knows a lot about stuff, you say they wrote the book on it. Well, Professor Wendy Wood did exactly that. Her book is called Good Habits, Bad Habits, uh, and it is one of the leading authorities on habit formation. Um, And uh, if you listen, um, you're going to learn an awful lot of stuff um, that is probably going to challenge what you think about how you do things and why you do things. So, for example, uh, we'll be talking about why your New Year's resolutions almost always fail, why habit trackers don't lead to good habits. Um, the simplest way to make a new habit or break an old habit. Um, why willpower doesn't work. There's so much um, to talk about. Um, so let's jump right in. This is Professor Wendy Wood, author of Good Habits, Bad Habits, and Provost Professor, indeed, of Psychology and Business at the University of Southern California at USC. And this is The Habits Habit. It's almost embarrassing to start with such a basic question for a provost professor of psychology and business, but I'm sure you must get asked this question more than any other. Like, what is a habit? <laughs> That's actually a smart question. It's not, it's not a silly one because we don't have access to our habits and the way they work in the same way that we do our thoughts and our feelings, our experiences, our beliefs, we can access those and evaluate them, think about them. But our habits actually work non-consciously. They work outside of our awareness. So it makes sense that people, in fact, wouldn't know a whole lot about how habits work. So that said, let me um, give you a definition of habits, and then I'll elaborate a bit. Habits form through action. So they don't, you can't make a decision to have a new habit. It doesn't work that way. Instead, habit memory ties together what you're doing in a particular context to get a reward. So it ties all of those pieces of information together, and it forms these little sort of shortcuts associations between contexts and responses. They tie all the pieces together in memory so that you can easily repeat the behavior again and get that same reward. And that's what's so functional about habits is they streamline our decision-making. So we don't have to wonder. My favorite example is I get up in the morning and I just make coffee out of habit. And I don't have to wonder, how am I going to do it? Or do I really want coffee this morning? Instead, I stand in front of the machine and I just do what I've done before. And that generates the same reward as I've gotten in the past, which is I get a good cup of coffee. What's interesting to me about this is a, there's a, well, there's loads obviously that's interesting. But one of the things that's interesting is we all instinctively 
know what habits are in the sense that if you ask someone to name a good habit or particularly if you ask someone to name a bad habit they'll probably be able to say smoking or poor diet or i don't know picking your nose like biting your nails so they they know the end result of the habit maybe rather than how it all works and so one of the things that i'm most interested in what led me to do this podcast is the answer um, to this question which is why should people care about habits and about knowing how habits work? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that we can all identify habits we have. We see ourselves repeat behavior over and over. But the trick is, as you said, we don't know what causes them. And that gets us into trouble because then we have behaviors that are being cued automatically that we may not want to engage in or we might have new ones that we want to do there's a societal institution around this which is new year's resolutions we all form them we form them knowing that the likelihood is we may not exactly meet the um, goals that we set for ourselves Part of the reason why we don't meet them is because we don't understand how to form habits. People can identify habits, but when it comes down to it, most of us think, okay, I'll just make a decision and then I won't do it anymore. Or I'll make a decision and I'll form a new habit. Or I really want to, I'm highly motivated. So that motivation is going to translate into some habit, some new habit I'll form. Uh, that's not the way it works at all. That's not the way our habit memories store information. I'm going to be running a course on this actually in December and I'm going to be doing a, a show on a national radio in Ireland. And what I'm thinking of calling it, and I don't know whether you think this is a good idea or not, I'm, I, effectively I'm looking for some free tips from you now, I think. Um, Instead of, so the, the term you would often hear around New Year's resolution is New Year, New Me, or New Year, New You. And I'm thinking of just saying New Year, New Habit, or New Year, New Habits, because there is no you, new you. You're not going to create a new you, certainly not in January. But if you start right uh, and try and start on the foundational habits that might lead towards whatever that goal is, maybe you'll make it through the first week of January without breaking your resolution. Exactly. I think the trick to forming a new habit is to realize that you can't will it, you have to do it. So you have to repeat behaviors in a regular way over and over so that you stamp in that habit memory and you start to automate the behavior real habits when you actually form one you don't have to think it's like me making coffee or it's that we've studied people with running habits they don't think about what they're doing they don't motivate themselves anymore instead very much uh, the behavior has become routinized and automated so that the basics are there they may have to tweak <laughs> some parts of it each time they go running, depending on whether it's raining, whether it's hot or cold. But the basic activity, they have 
automated so that it becomes something they can do without struggle or thought. And that's the beauty of a habit. I put my cards on the table. When I started reading your book and all the kind of other books that go with it and really started looking into this, I, I, I was a little bit, I don't know, in one way I was delighted. I felt like I'd found a missing piece of a jigsaw because I've tried every productivity app, every to-do list app, every Pomodoro timings, getting things done, seven habits, the Eisenhower matrix, the full shooting match of getting better at stuff. And then when I read this, I was like, oh, I see where I've been going wrong for the last 40 years. And you think, why did no one tell me about this stuff earlier? Why well, wouldn't tell us about this stuff earlier? <laughs> there's a why didn't you write this book reason. 20 years ago is what I'm saying to you. <laughs> there's a very good reason. And that is because we're only research, psychological research, neuroscience is only finally identifying the basis of habit performance and habit memory. We didn't have the tools to do it up until about, oh, a decade or so ago. So you weren't alone. Scientists didn't know either, really, how habits worked. And that's only been revealed over time, slowly. And in fact, that's why I wrote the book, is there are, as you said, a lot of habit books out there. But I would look at them and they really didn't convey the research. They didn't convey what science knows about habit. And that's my intent in writing this book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, is to actually explain to people how these things work, why they don't know this intuitively. And once they do understand how they work, then how do you take control of it? Because there's nothing worse than struggling constantly with a bad habit. We've all had them. We all know how com uncomfortable that is. There's a, there's a wonderful line in the book. I'll just read it out for anyone who hasn't um, uh, read it, and then we might discuss it a little bit. You say, habits come from repetition. Behavior begets behavior. There isn't a further, more complicated, rare, or special ingredient. That should be wonderfully liberating. That should make you optimistic. If you just keep doing it, it'll start happening with more and more ease. Make it easy for yourself no style points and <laughs> what i there, there's a lot to, to question about that um and i and i will so the first thing is and it probably it's it comes from the title of your book habits they're formed the same way whether they're good or they're bad so i was thinking about this a lot in advance of this interview and for me if you have a bad habit Am I being too simplistic to say that is proof of itself that you, you can create habits and therefore, because they follow the same process, you can create good habits or you can create a better, more resourceful habit to replace that bad habit. Do you, do you follow what I mean? The fact of you having bad habits means you have whatever uh, is needed to create a habit to begin with and they are the same for good and bad. Is that overly simplistic? Probably. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Habits are a very simple learning system. Uh, all mammals learn through habits. In fact, that's how we train our dogs is we try to help them, we cue them, we reward them to form particular habits. Everyone has habits. And some of the first research I did in this area was to figure out, because I thought, some people seem to live more structured lives than, and 
others people seem to be more spontaneous. So probably people differ in what percent of their behavior is a habit. So we followed people around. We beat them once an hour and we had them report on what they were thinking and doing every hour. And we found that about 43% of the time, everyone, almost uniform, is repeating the behaviors that they have done in the past in that location while they're thinking about something else, which is, of course, the beauty of a habit. That's automaticity. You don't have to think about it and make a decision about it. It just runs off on its own. What but doesn't that mean if you make that 43% good or better, or if you focus on that 43%, it's almost inevitable that life will get better or you'll achieve whatever it is you want to achieve? Exactly. And that is what research has shown us in the last few years. This is a very new finding, but it's one that's held up in a number of different studies that people who have high self-control, right? These are the people who are high achievers, they are healthy, they have successful families, happy kids. People like us, Wendy, is what you're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, people with high self-control. We used to think that they did it by inhibiting all of the bad behaviors, by motivation, by decision-making. And what we found instead is that they know how to form good habits. So they have figured out they're very good at alternating their behavior to reach their goals. They understand something about the process, whether we don't know actually whether they can tell us or whether it's more just an intuitive understanding. But we see it in their behavior that they know how to structure the environments that they're in. They know how to repeat behaviors on a regular basis so that they end up forming habits that keep them healthy, make them productive, have happy relationships. This is one of the things that I have been most fascinated about in your book and in the work generally. It's this concept of situational control and whether you call it environmental design or situation control or whatever it is, but it's not going to the place where your bad happen is going to happen. For example, if, you, if take for example, if every time you go to the shop, you buy something that you shouldn't, whether it's cigarettes or junk food or, or something like that, that's your kind of trigger or cue and your response when you're there, whether you, you, you have a craving for those things or not. Something as simple as doing your shopping online so you're not passing the temptation at eye level or even just sending someone else to the shop would is part of the process of breaking the bad habit, if you like. That, that idea of willpower being the way to do it, it's just fundamentally wrong. Yes. It's not how people who are successful at controlling their behavior actually do. And I think part of the challenge with understanding this is that it all seems too simple, right? So you just remove yourself from that context and that will change your behavior. Uh, it's something that electronics 
companies, electronics are phone manufacturers, iPhones, social media websites, something that Amazon knows well, that if you make things difficult, you lose customers. So two clicks, slow loading page, you lose customers. You make it easy and you keep customers. And as you alluded to in the store, in retail, there are sayings like, eye level is buy level, right? So which at eye level is what you're likely to buy, which is why retailers put the really cheap stuff down at your feet so you won't see it as readily and you'll be less likely to buy it. These things work. They work in business and they also work in people's lives. Another reason that I wrote this book is to help people understand how to reverse engineer their environments, their living contacts, so that they repeat behaviors that they want to and stop behaviors that are more problematic. It's, a, it's easy to do, but it's not, some, not necessarily the way people usually think about behavior change. I would go one further um, in that it's, there's something, and I, I'd be interested to know if this is your experience in a huge range of research that you've done, or even just anecdotally, is it bothers me that it's not willpower. We're, we're taught that strong willpower is a sign of character and stuff like this. And little I, I just there's something that grinds with me that I'm, you're saying not you're saying but that the right thing to do is make it easier by just taking this out of the equation let's just say it's a very personal example I have a very sweet tooth like too sweet so when I do go to a shop or a store I will inevitably come out with too much junk food like just every single time it drives my wife bananas and to think that the solution to that is just don't go to the shop or don't go to those shops or whatever it is, rather than having the willpower to not pick it up and put it in the trolley. Is, it, is that a universal thing that humans just don't like thinking that we can't do it? So instead of bashing through and keep going until you can do it, just stop trying almost. Just cha- move the goalposts. It is a matter of don't try and struggle that's not going to get you very far with those sorts of temptations yes we see in the research i've done we see as people like to believe that they're in control of their behavior we all like to believe in our own agency and if you start to think that the environments that you're in are that important it challenges our views of ourselves and our own control over our behavior. But it's so evident. (laughs) It's so evident in economics, in the marketplace. My current favorite study, I'll tell you about it, which sort of underscores this, the point that you're making. It was a, it's an old study. It was done to try to get people in an office building to take the stairs and not use the elevator. It's good for their health, it's good for the environment. 
So the researchers put up a bunch of signs all around the elevator. Don't, don't take the elevator, take the stairs, good for your health, uh, no effect. So what they did is they decided, well, they'd use a radical intervention. They'd slow the closing of the elevator door by 16 seconds. That stopped a third of the elevator trips and made people start taking the stairs. And they did this for a month. And this is just simple friction, right? The door closed. It just took a little bit longer. And that's enough to discourage people from taking the elevator. And instead, it set them taking the stairs. And the lovely thing about the study is when they put the elevator back to speed four weeks later, people kept taking the stairs because they formed a habit to do it. And they weren't going to fuss with that inconsistent elevator anymore. They decided they were just going to stick with the stairs, and they did. They followed their habit. It's something to keep in mind. Sometimes behavior change doesn't involve convincing yourself of doing the right thing. Sometimes it just involves making it easier to do the right thing. Yes, don't walk down those aisles in the grocery store. Start practicing going down the produce aisle and the dairy aisle and the bread aisle and then leave all of the sweets and, and chips and stuff. That's not an aisle you go down. And if you don't, go down it. You won't be tempted and you won't pick things up. I'll tell you what, we'll start that next week, Wendy, all right? Maybe, <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if I'm ready just yet. <laughs> you, you can see that I'm not an ideal subject for um, these um, good habits. That's part of the reason I had to start the podcast to, to mine the knowledge from people like your good self. Persistency and consistency then is paramount. Is that fair to say? Yes. That's what your habit memory picks up. Habit memories pick up repeated experiences. So your consistent behavior over time is connected to the context in which you are doing the behavior. And over time, that forms into a strong habit. But it's really the repetition that's critical. I'm curious then, because one of the most searched for terms around habits, and I'll come on to search terms in a bit, because you talk about it in your book in terms of uh, the number of books that have the word habit in it is on the rise um, dramatically, uh, and also the, the wide range of pseudoscience that's out there if you Google habits of high achievers and habits of success and habits of happiness. But one of the, one of the terms that is searched the most is habit tracker. And I just it, I did a, a search through your book. And I just noticed that you don't mention a habit tracker or the act of habit tracking or you market a big X in the calendar or any of these kind of techniques. Is that because the science doesn't support it or it just didn't get included in the book? Is it an omission by design? Habit tracking is not going to help you form a habit in the sense that your habit memory doesn't care whether you've tracked the behavior or not. Your habit memory depends upon what you've done. So this is a challenge, I think, for many apps. You can buy apps that 
promise to help you develop a habit, they help you think and keep track of your behavior. Most of them are trackers. Some of them are planners, help you set goals, but they don't actually help you form a habit. So that's part of the irony of most behavior change apps right now, because they're really good at short-term change. They're good at changing our thoughts and our goals, not so much our behavior. Because one doesn't necessarily follow the other. Exactly, yes. Yes, your recognition, understanding of your behavior is a separate memory system from the habit memories that you're trying to create. And that's, it's a, it's a weird idea for many of us, but our brains are not a single unified whole. They're not just one thing. Instead, they're made up of a bunch of interconnected networks. And the habit memory network is only connected, it's integrated with our thinking, feeling selves, but it's not the same as, and it can't be guided directly. You can't form habit memories by thinking certain things or by feeling certain things or by putting a check mark on a calendar. Instead, the habit memory forms from repetition, the rewards you get for that repetition, and the re let's talk about rewards for a minute. Many people think that um, putting an X on a calendar is a reward because you get to see all of those X's all in a row, and that's a way of congratulating yourself. Yeah, you feel good because you haven't broken the chain or whatever. Exactly. You've stuck with your streak. And it's a nice idea. It might motivate some people, but it's not the kind of reward that forms a habit. Habits form with immediate rewards. So they're ones that you experience as you're doing the behavior. So if you want to start working out on a more regular basis, get yourself to exercise, then giving yourself a bonus at the end of the week or sending yourself, put, putting positive sticky notes up all over the place about reminding yourself that you should do this. Those aren't going to help you form a habit necessarily because they're not rewards in the moment. A reward in the moment is feeling good about what you're doing. I work out pretty regularly on an elliptical trainer, which is the most boring thing in the world. And I had a hard time doing it until I figured out I can read trashy novels and watch stupid TV shows <laughs> while I'm working out. And that has made the whole experience very positive. I now enjoy it. And I look forward to that part of my day. It's formed into a very stable habit for me. And I mean, is feeling good the most obvious reward that the uh, most obvious and common reward for, for good behavior or good habits, or even sometimes when, if I could put it like this, when you're doing an exercise, for example, that you hate, but that you know is not good for you, you the simple fact that you've done it, even though you don't want to do it, if I could, if we're looking at this on a conscious level, 
that typically makes me feel good. They say you never regret the workout you did. You always regret the workout you didn't do. So you're dreading this run. It's raining. It's miserable. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. And then once you've done it, you feel amazing because even though you didn't want to do it, you did it. Is that a reward? Of course. And so is pride in what you're doing. All of those and, and the good feeling you get. There's all kinds of endorphins and all sorts of things that happen to, in our um, brains when we exercise. But it needs to happen when you do it. It needs to be something that, I mean, I don't know what you do. Do you listen to podcasts? I used to run outside and I loved doing it because I got to be in nature and I got to experience the, the day in a new way. That was immediately rewarding to me and helped to form a running habit. Let's stick with the running habit for a minute because it, it brings us on to something that you say elsewhere in the book. We repeatedly do the things we love, but we also grow to love the things that we repeatedly do. It's like an invisible feedback loop inside our heads. And um, as you can imagine, this loop has something to do with our habits and it has a lot to do with our happiness. So sticking with running, when I started running, I hated it. Like I was like, this is miserable. This is grim. I'm not enjoying this at all. And then it did just reach a point where I loved the time alone, the headspace, the feeling of achievement when you'd run a good time or when you'd done something well. And then I ran some half marathons and I was like, it just felt like I was in a different place or a different person from the person who was trudging around mumbling and grumbling however many months earlier. So I suppose do all habits that we really want to the extent that there's a connection between motivation or inspiration and habits, do they all eventually end up feeling good or being something that you, despite yourself, now enjoy? if you break through that tipping point effectively. You're right. People like what is familiar. And particularly with exercise, there's many reasons why it becomes easier. Your body gets used to it. Physically, your body adapts. Your muscles adapt. Your muscles grow. You learn how to do it better. So there are many reasons why we start to enjoy exercise more the more often we do it. But that basic principle holds more broadly that you, you might not have a running habit. You might have a habit of coming home from work and sitting on the couch and watching TV. If you do it often enough, it becomes familiar and it becomes something that's sort of part of you, something you recognize, something you can anticipate. It, yes, it's rather boring if you actually think about it, but that familiarity has an appeal. I'm a professor at a university, and I always think it's funny watching students in the first day of class. They choose a seat, and then the next time they come back, they almost invariably sit in the same seat. And you ask them why, and they're like, mm, I don't know, I just chose it and I stuck with it. You get used to seeing the classroom from a certain perspective. It's worked in the past and you stick with it. We like what's familiar. We like what's usual. There's wonderful research on how this works with food that particularly children 
the more you introduce them to certain types of food, the more likely they are to eat it in the future. And this works with grown-ups too. There have been studies where people have been asked to taste test different fruits and vegetables for several weeks. And at the end of that time, they actually start choosing to include more fruits and vegetables in their own diet outside of the taste test because we like, we grow to like what we're used to. It's a very human phenomenon. And unfortunately, it reconciles us to our bad habits as well as our good ones. But, and so that, again, is where the, um, the environmental design uh, or, or however you want to describe it comes in, that you prepare to tackle that familiarity by putting your runners out, or by making the running easier or either or, I think, or am I wrong? You make it easier to do the run or you make it harder to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. So you, you introduce friction to try and stop it or you reduce friction to try and encourage it. Is that so if you take your problem is sitting on the couch when you come in from work and flicking on Netflix, it might be extreme, but if you disconnect your Netflix account and put your runners in front of the front door, are you more likely to go for the run? Uh, that's a great example. And in fact, I have a son who is a who is a bike racer and he is so motivated. He loves to race. And even he, when he gets home from work, in the evening and he intends to train on his indoor bicycle trainer if he hasn't set that up in his living room so that he has to physically move it out of the way in order to sit on the couch even he ends up sitting on the couch because he's tired after work high levels of motivation don't get you where you want to go he always puts his bike trainer in the middle of the living room he has to climb over it to get to the couch. And that has made it so that he's a very regular, he trains very regularly. This ties in with something that you say as well in the book. And it, it's directly applicable, I think, in the sense that we're talking about it now. So what you say is knowledge basically has nothing to do with it. Knowing what's good for you won't make you do it. Knowing uh, all of these things won't make it do it. What I'm interested in from your point of view is, let's just say someone's read your book, as I have, or someone's listening to this podcast, as hopefully some people are. We now know that motivation isn't going to work and that we need to rely on habits. But by almost your own definition, that's not going to be enough, right? Yes. So we Damn have... it, Wendy! <laughs> <laughs> we have to make the changes to make our environment support us. I think that in modern times, we have ended up in contexts that don't actually allow us, don't make it easy to be healthy, to connect with people who support you, to be productive. We're constantly barraged with social media disruptions, with fast food, too much food, we drive instead of walking places, particularly in America. <laughs> and all of those things make it challenging for us to have the right habits. And we know this 
Most of us know this intellectually, but we don't really know how to shift it. And you shift it through your environment, through just what put you in that situation. You reverse engineer it so that you can create an environment that allows you to live the kind of life you want to. Yeah. You mentioned the, that people are one of the, so when we're talking about cues, actually, do you know what? I'll ask you firstly about this. I don't want to go down the route of having you bash other authors or other people who are popular in this sphere, okay? But the reality is that at the moment, the most popular book on habits on Amazon is Atomic Habits by James Clear. So the likelihood is anyone who's starting maybe their habit journey or finding out about this stuff, that might be the first book they read. And in that, they're going to read his version of of this, which is, his words would be the habit loop. And Charles Duhigg used the habit loop as well. And you see the word habit loop come up all the time. Again, that's not a, a phrase that appears in your book, uh, albeit um, it seems like there's an element of overlap between them. So it's context, repetition, reward. Is your habit loop, is that, or your version of it, or the scientific version of it? I don't know that there's a loop. It, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> there's a loop. It's, it's a funny idea. If you're trying to form a habit, You just want to repeat the behavior in the same way, in a stable context, for a reward. And the reward needs to be immediate. So that's a pretty straightforward description that I think most people would agree with. And whatever you call it is fine. Okay. (laughs) But, but But those are the basic ingredients, yeah. So when we talk then about context, you say that people can be one of the greatest contexts. And and again, there's this concept uh, out there for right or for wrong of accountability partners or a tribe of people that you relate to. In that sense, it seems like a lot of people are using the internet as some or social media as their, how would you, to keep them on track or to keep account of it you start your book with this in terms of your sister-in-law are we approaching it wrong in terms of how we're trying to set the environment in that way to support good habit formation yes because other people can be cues to behavior they can also provide you with rewards having an exercise buddy is a great idea because you have someone to talk with somebody who reminds you that you had set up uh, a plan to go to the gym after work today. So other people can be both rewards and cues. I think when relationships break up and you lose, if you've been in a close relationship with somebody and they break up, you get the sense that exactly how much of our behavior depends on other people, depends on those cues, depends on those rewards, because it can leave you sort of feeling, I've lost a part of myself because so much of what I did was with this other person. If we can find communities, online communities, other types, that provide rewards and cues for our beneficial behavior, that's great. There are 
different apps, workout apps that seem to do that now. And those should be very effective. There's a, an, I know there's a bicycling app. Yeah, Strava. That, there's Strava, but there's also Swift, which puts you cycling with other people in virtual worlds, but they're real other people. And that social connection and reward is really quite motivating for many people. Yeah, my brother-in-law actually has Swift and he has it on. He has one of these, I'm sure your your son probably has it as well. It's one of these fancy mechanical uh, hydraulic, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, turbo trainers. And he plonks it down in front of the telly and him and all his friends uh, are off cycling in this virtual world because they can't do it together or whatever. This might sound so basic to a professor of psychology, but when I was reading about all of this and and, and basically the core message, if you could drill it down to its very basics, is just keep doing it. I couldn't get out of my head Dory from Finding Nemo going, just keep swimming. That's it, isn't it? Whatever it is you're trying to do, just keep doing it. Exactly. And then design your environment to make it as easy as you can to just keep doing it. And find rewards that make sense to you that are that you will appreciate. Yes, absolutely. No. Every, every writer who is successful has habits to write. And they, I was down in Key West and Ernest Hemingway had a house there. And he had his own studio where he used to go every morning. And he wrote for several hours. That was his habit. He needed to be there for a certain amount of time Writing doesn't always go well. <laughs> so, and writing itself, the actual fact of it is not a habit. It's creative. It's innovative. But it is enabled by that habit. And that's something that we've also learned in recent years in research is that many more of our behaviors than we would have imagined are supported by habit. Because habits provide the infrastructure. They're what gets us writing every morning. For some writers, it's a number of pages or number of words that they regularly produce. Sometimes they're garbage. Sometimes they're great. But the habit is to do it. You say that you can make any behavior more habitual as long as you do it the same way each time. And so as well as a huge emphasis on Uh, setting up the environment and being consistent. So there's a huge uh, element of repetition in terms of same time, same place. As you say, let's just say it's a writing habit. Every morning from 9am till 10am, I'm going to sit at this desk here and I'm going to write. And you do that religiously every day and that, that becomes like that. Here's a question for you (laughs) from a 40-year-old man with a a six-year-old, three-year-old, and nine-month-old downstairs. Oh, my. (laughs) I have not had a consistent day in six years. I know it's a bit of a cop-out, but is it harder to create habits at certain parts in your life where it's just very difficult to have a routine? Yes, there's one caveat to the statement I made earlier that everybody has 
habits and it's all at about the same proportion of your behavior is that when we studied people who live with others, particularly children, their lives were a mess. Uh, spoiler alert, I can, I can end this one for you. I don't need to see the research. <laughs> you could think of it as their lives were more spontaneous. Perfect. Um, <laughs> because children are, are the, the biggest joy, but they are the, some of the biggest disruptors as well. It's, and they keep growing and changing. And so that disruption, as soon as you ha- think you have it figured out, that disruption shifts and they're onto a new stage in their life. So I'm afraid, Brian, this is your experience for a while. (laughs) Okay, so I I should just let my life go to hell in a handbasket for a while and we'll come back to the habits in a couple of decades. While I'm obviously being facetious, I think what I'm learning or what my personal experience of this is that I'm at a time in my life where I have to dial everything back. So if I still want the good habits, let's just say I want to be a healthier person then that might mean 10 minutes of exercise a day rather than an hour Uh, or just trying to find ways to get some sort of routine that works. Like when they go to bed, the first thing I do is this or whatever else it is. And so where are we? So what I'm interested in terms of habits, okay, is I see this as a way that, you know, people can really get a little more control of their lives and whatever else. And as someone who has spent a long time thinking about life in terms of goals, where do habits fit into this? I mentioned earlier search volume. Sorry, this is a bit of a long-winded question. I will get to the end of it in a minute. If you look again at the search volume, twice as many people search for inspiration or motivation or goals and goal setting as search for habits. So by way of example, about 1.2 million people in the US a month search for inspirational quotes. About 110,000 people search for habits. Why are we obsessed with inspiration and uh, motivation at the expense of habits? And do we need to reverse the process? So if I want to achieve a goal of, let's just say, I don't know, being healthy is not a great goal because it's not very defined, but should, I, should your goal setting start with what habits do I need to achieve the goal? And then what environments can I design to achieve that habit? And then once you get the context and then the habit will follow and then the goal will follow that. That's a great description of it. Yep, I would agree with that completely. I do think that the reason why people are searching for motivational um, quotes is they're an immediate feel-good. Habits are beneficial over time. So habits are what help you achieve long-term goals that require repetition. Could be saving money. It could be studying. It could be writing a book. It could be exercising, anything. It's very different from wanting a pick-me-up from a motivational quote. Both are very legitimate. And ultimately, If you form the right habit, you won't even be thinking about it anymore. It won't be something that you have to think about. So you'll be able to focus on motivational quotes and other things that make you feel good. I believe that 
people who have children and very challenging lives with little children can be challenging at times. I think habits are helpful, especially helpful to you, because they allow, they, they allow you to automate some parts of your life. When my kids were little, I had my, I have two sons, they're two years apart. When they were little, I trained myself to get up and run at six in the morning because they would get up at seven and want to go, want breakfast to get to school. And that was the only time of the day, six to seven in the morning, that I knew I would have to myself. And I really struggled to fit it in at other times of the day, but I couldn't find a regular time to exercise. So that was, that was the decision I had to make. And once I formed that habit, first few times I got up at six it was pretty painful. But once I formed the habit, it just became something I did and I didn't even think about it. It was no struggle anymore. It was like I had accomplished that piece and it ran off in my mind and I didn't have to make it happen anymore. So I had a bit more energy left for handling my children. I was certainly calmer from the exercise and was able to play with them and engage with them. So I think that habits are particularly beneficial in your situation. But it all starts, see, what's happening for me, the more I'm talking to people like yourself and the more I'm reading about it is, it's all starting to make sense. So the time I was at my most productive in my life has been when I was in school because I got up at the same time every day. I did the same thing every day. I came home at the same time. So when I was studying for our leaving cert, the equivalent of the, the final high school exam over in the States, I studied from seven to eight. I did went to school, I came home, I had food, I studied again. Like it was pretty much the exact same thing for maybe two years. And I smashed it because I was just in such a, it, there was no thought. It was just, it's this time, at this time I do this. And it was all pretty effortless. And of course, the, the older you get, the less rigidity and routine there is. And you go to college and all of a sudden you're free to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I'm like, Jesus, this is, I don't know what to be doing with this at all. And it's trying to make uh, time for routine around all the other stuff. But it, if it, the more ritualized and routinized it is, so it's not just, it's better, for example, is it or is it to go for a run at the same time every day or however often you're going to do it or to start from the same starting point, to have a consistency about not just exercising every day, but trying to do it roughly same time, same place, same situation. Is that true? Yes, there actually has been research. People who go to the gym at the same time every or same days of the week and same time at those on those days that they are more likely to automate that exercise to become a habit so they start doing it without thinking without having to struggle and i it, it's going to be different for everyone but people with little children need to find time for themselves and 
it's usually not when the children are awake. So if your kids go to bed early, that might be the time for you to pull out your trainer or whatever. But you're probably not going to be spending too much time doing a leisurely workout at the gym just because there's not going to be that kind of that there's not going to be that kind of flexibility in your day so it forces you to make to really prioritize you have to be clear I what mean, is important to you and that i think is a couple of elements and it might be beyond the scope of this chat to to an extent i don't know but we'll find out in a minute um the the disconnect or the possible disconnect between habits and goals and depending on your point in life purpose for a while tipping on 40 as I was a bit rudderless and a bit god what am I doing what's this all about and all my good habits actually just fell away a little bit because it felt like I don't know could they exist in a vacuum if I didn't really feel I was in charge of or I knew what I was doing or what I wanted to do there was no real sense of I don't know, continuity or habits serving any particular purpose, particularly to start a new habit was a bit like, eh, if the bigger question hadn't been answered or it was, if the bigger question wasn't sufficiently clear in my mind on a personal level, I just found everything else just fell apart a little bit. How durable are habits to that kind of overarching life purpose, big question kind of interference? I'll answer it this way. We do know that people who have regular habits that they enjoy are happier in life. So automating things that make you feel good, it's good for your well-being. It's good for quality of life. There are always going to be things that bigger issues, bigger challenges that get in our way at times. But I would bet that even during those periods, you had some habits that just persisted. Mostly the bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you didn't really know why you were doing them anymore. Because habits don't require a broader purpose to persist. Okay, let me ask you this then. Take uh, running as an example then, okay? Um, For me, uh, I had developed the habit of running, but in the context or in a very kind of specific context of training for a half marathon. And actually, once I ran the half marathon, uh, I stopped running because it felt like I'd achieved the goal that the habit was there to support. So while I was training for the half marathon, I never missed a day. I ran every Tuesday, Thursday and Sunday for, I don't know, five, six months, whatever it was. And then once I ran the half marathon, I just stopped. That makes sense. (laughs) Yes, because habits don't necessarily, you can make decisions not to do, not to act on your habits. You can decide you've met your goal and you're not doing it anymore. And so you might find yourself, I might find myself waking up at six in the morning thinking I'm going to go running and decide, no, I don't want to today. And so I don't. But that thought, see, the habit is the thought in mind 
of the behavior. And most of the time, we just go along with the action in mind and carry it out. But it's not inevitable. You can make decisions not to do things. So we're not automatons having to repeat behavior and doing it even if we don't want to. Our habits are a challenge to control because they put those thoughts in our minds. And because you, you probably think when you walk down the aisle with all of the candy and the cookies and you call them biscuits and the cakes in the supermarket, you probably think I'm choosing those because I want to. That's our sense of agency. But it's also in part because that thought of eating that food comes to mind when and buying it comes to mind when you're in the aisle in the grocery store we can't really figure out we're not very good at figuring out what is our desire and what is a habit because we have this overarching belief in our own agency kind of gets in the way of mm. identifying what's a habit Final question then, um, Wendy, is there, in all your years of studying this and human behavior and how they interact, is there like one particular good habit that would be considered a sort of foundational habit or a good starting point? Or if there's one habit that is easy to set up the context for and get some success in so that you can understand better the power of habit? Do you you follow what I mean? So let's just get one good habit in the bag using this system and then we'll have more confidence to do the rest. Is there one that's a good starting point or is that just not really how this works? It's not really how it works. Your habit memory system will pick up anything you do repeatedly. And there's not any foundational habit or anything that's more basic than anything else, just start with something that's easy for you, something that you can control the environment, something that is enjoyable. And that's the basic formula for all of us and And for all of our habits. And do you think is that why so many um, New Year's resolutions fail? Because people just are, you'd be embarrassed to say what's your new year's resolution and to say something really easy because people would be it's a mindset that's easy but isn't that the point yeah there was a wonderful study of new year's resolutions three months after people had made them and they had people list the resolutions initially and then go in and rate how enjoyable they would be which seems irrelevant this is a new year's resolution how enjoyable it would be to do this thing and then how life-changing and important it would be. Now, that's why we make New Year's resolutions, because they're life-changing. And so the researchers were interested in which resolutions survived that three months. And what they found out was the real life-changing ones, they didn't survive. People weren't especially likely to follow through on resolutions that they thought were really important and changed their life. Instead, they followed through on the ones that they found enjoyable. And that's an important insight. Even with New Year's resolutions, you need to get a reward. 
and so the so make it something that you make it something easy that you enjoy doing and 2021 is going to be the year for you exactly brilliant listen thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight with us I, i've really enjoyed the book uh, i'm going to go back through it again and this is not the reason you talked to me but i'm full of great excuses now for why i've been doing everything wrong i can't wait to go down and tell my wife that none of it's my fault <laughs> exactly it is freeing once you understand some of the mechanisms behind your own behavior it it's it's liberating uh, it is now before we wrap up what's the most exciting you obviously presumably have lots of insight into the current research that's on and ongoing and that the rest of the world might not know about yet or that haven't been published is there anything happening at the moment that you're really excited about in this area or that you can't wait to see the results of i think some of the most interesting work right now is very molecular in the sense that it's understanding what it is about habit memories that makes them stick so it's it's very it's mechanistic about what is it about those memories that we can't just discard them like we can all of the other memories we have in fact this is a real challenge right for eyewitness testimony, other sorts of things, that every time we retrieve a memory, it shifts slightly so that people's testimony can change over time without them realizing it. But habits don't work that way. So what is it that makes them, that, that gives them that quality? I think that's a very interesting question and one that we're pursuing right now in our lab. Because isn't isn't the theory that you, you the hab, you never forget a habit? This this kind of theory about replacing one habit with another because that memory never goes. You exactly. shift the cues, you shift other things, but the memory itself is always there. Yep, you get back to the old cues, and the old habit can be activated, even if you think you've forgotten. Fascinating. <laughs> okay, look, I've taken up enough of your time, and um, Doctor Wood, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Brian. And if you enjoyed it too, please do leave a comment uh, and subscribe for next week's episode when we're going to be talking to a New York Times bestselling author, Nir Ayal, who's the author of Hooked and Indistractable, about habits uh, and indistraction uh, and how you can, you know, get better at life, which is nice. Um, so that's all next week. And you'll find more on the website at www.thehabitshabit.com.